Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, it's Kyle Meredith, host of the Kyle Meredith with podcast presented by WFPK at WFPK.org and the Consequence Podcast Network. It's a series that puts the spotlight on iconic musicians and actors, inviting them to drop by and talk about their latest projects, whether it's albums, TV shows, films or beyond. I'm going to say something I don't want to say. Here it goes. Without Spinal Tap, there is no Tenacious D. Whoa. (laughs) Man. We get great stories and the biggest scoops from people like Garbage's Shirley Manson, the 1975's Matty Healy, Jack Black and Kyle Gass of Tenacious D, Maya Hawk, Kiefer Sutherland, and everyone in between. New episodes arrive every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, so it's a great way to keep up with your favorite artists and discover some new ones. You can find Kyle Meredith with on the Consequence Podcast Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Punk band The Locals formed in 1997. Five years later, they changed their name to The Matches, signed to Epitaph a few years after that, and briefly flirted with mainstream success before nearly killing themselves with a nonstop tour schedule before finally ending their initial run in 2009. The band members all grew up going to Gilman and loving East Bay punk and ska, so some of the initial local songs were in fact ska punk. The matches also played with several ska bands in their time, including Link 80 and Real Big Fish. Today, we talk to Adam Davis's old friend Sean Harris, the lead singer and guitarist for The Matches, and he gives us the ska 411 of his old band. I've known Sean for so long when we, he actually, The Matches, when they were called The Locals, played the very last Link 80 show and iMusicast, and then we played with them dozens of times in Dessa. I mean, I've seen these guys go from like little kids to adults. Wow. They got pretty big, um, more as like a pop punk band, but you know, there's ska roots in early matches. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, they definitely came up listening to the same, you know, East Bay ska punk uh, that we did. And I mean, even went to, you know, the same school as some of our guys. And they played some ska songs. Yeah. And played with ska bands. Yeah, and big time friends with Link Eighty. So yeah, one of their first big tours was with um, Real Big Fish. We talked about that a little bit. Yes, we did talk about that. That was there was some interesting stories there. Yep. The matches did uh, their first reunion in uh, I think it was a couple dates at Slim's, right? That sounds accurate. Yeah. Okay, so a, a day or two before those shows. <laughs> we did a warm up show at Leo's. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Do you remember what the what who the opening acts were? This is bad because we're this is like the reunion memories that I'm like <laughs> struggling to recall right now. <laughs> it's not even that long ago. No, it's not. It's really not. This was like uh the 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 ten year anniversary. It's it is ten years like beyond the ten year anniversary now though. Yeah. It's the wild thing. But um yeah. Uh yeah, yeah, we did that Leo's show. 
yes. and and uh, me and my sister's band opened for. Oh no, no, no we played the day before. <laughs> we were like, people are going to go to Leo's, so we should book a, a double header at Leo's two nights in a row. <laughs> so I'll, I'll help you out. So the first band was called, or I should say, a person named Zen Zenith. Yeah. After that was a kind of a weird band. <laughs> one of my favorites <laughs> yeah they they did they just didn't stay on the stage for some reason <laughs> maybe the stage was too small maybe they didn't yeah, like yeah, the stage yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, they were excellent i mean it wasn't it wasn't the only time uh that i've been uh bold enough or dumb enough to uh get in our boots to come on stage before my band but never a great idea like who can follow that <laughs> so okay when you booked us this was in uh 2014 yes i know you you have a history with adam did you know what Narboots was oh yeah 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 yeah. okay yeah yeah i keep i keep up with adam <laughs> <laughs> and we did uh you had us open for you uh let's see what was it was the uh, ivy room in 2017 correct yeah and um then you did a solo gig at a narboot show in 2018 at the uptown do you remember that uh-huh yeah 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 we like played in the patio my wife played drums for me yeah <laughs> i remember uh well i couldn't really remember very clearly what occurred that night and i just googled it and i saw like a, a youtube clip and uh the clip is me and Adam are on stage and we're all singing stand by me for some reason. <laughs> do, you, do you or Adam, do you remember why we were singing stand by me? I just wanted to have kind of a kumbaya moment under the stars. Oh, this was your idea? I'm sure. I think it was. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, so then halfway through our song, like you gave the mic to a woman in the crowd and she's got like this amazing soulful voice and she's singing all the like counter parts was that lauren wakefield yes yeah yeah she she's been uh adam she's been coming to our show since i music cast so the people at these reunions and the other reunions this is kind of like the i music cast crowd right yeah yeah i mean i would i think anything that happens in the bay area is some version of the iMusic cast crowd if I'm involved. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so you kind of like know, you know the people at these shows, these reunion shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least by face, but like I'd say, I'd say 20% of them by name also. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it was, it looked really impressive when we did the reunions and like did the string of sold out shows at Slim's or like, sold out the Fillmore or whatever, but like all that really was, was like the people that everybody that ever came to I music cast to see like Adam's old bands and my old band, like all showing up on one, on one night. Um, whereas like they originally when they became fans or came out to shows, it was all of those people uh, stretched out over the course of like three years. So that's why it like looked impressive later, but it was really just all the same people. <laughs> there, there was, there was no discovery. No, no, but it's a, it's a reunion. It's not supposed to be discovery. It's supposed to be a, we're still, we're still with you. Yeah. 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 How did you guys find iMusicast? Oh, um, I mean, I know I'm asking you to reach way back, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I've, uh, 
we we uh we were just like we were like submitting to booking uh what do you call booking people at clubs the booking bookers. people at clubs the yeah. bookers <laughs> <laughs> all over the bay area and we were like playing some like pretty whack places uh the uh uh adam you remember like playing like the pound oh yeah and and uh and and the oasis up in san rafael like yep. the, like teen centers and just like eventually became became the verge yeah, I don't think I ever played there when it became the Verge, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure you did. Sounds very professional. <laughs> um, I I only played it when there was like Twister on the floor and Candyland on the shelves. Um, but but uh, uh, yeah, I I mean we 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 would just kind of play anywhere, um, and then uh, at some point we thought it would be a good idea if we could if we could book the bills because we were tired of because i didn't know the name of what the person does that books the show <laughs> so i wanted to, i wanted to be that yeah <laughs> um and like our drummer was like very organized so it seemed like something that we could um that you know we if 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 we found a place that you know his organizational skills could actually like make the bookings uh happen um and then we had we had this manager at the time uh and he he basically like vouched he he found brian at iMusicCast through some like you know i don't know some old old, guy old guys that did music business in the bay area before (laughs) yeah (laughs) before i was in high school um yeah and and we met and we met Brian and and that manager vouched for us and then we were able to do it yeah so the very last Link eighty show was at iMusicast that was so awesome and it was with what was you know the locals which was it uh-huh. became the matches yes how many shows had you played there prior to that happening um I mean that was fairly early on i mean i i want to say like we wouldn't have been audacious enough to ask you guys to play it uh if we weren't already like drawing a crowd but i want to say that that was like probably like the second or third like sold out show okay which means that and i know the first time we played there we did a hundred heads like on the dot and that and i remember that like brian's stipulation was that uh, we needed to have like to break even for all of their webcasting. <laughs> they were also a webcasting business. Like they were primarily a webcasting business, but like wanted show. And this didn't exist at the time. I don't know if it still exists even now, but like th- that's the a business. But uh, yeah, he was like both. He was he was like tinkering in some real uh, in in some real like. Uh, startup kind of yeah uh territory there and uh so he needed like his overhead was like he needed like 98 people and i remember we like had one or two people over what he needed to break even so he let us do another show and that was the stipulation like okay we wanted to do a series of shows and he was like i'll let you do one show and then if you get 99 people then um you can do another one um, and so we did another one and then we figured out that we could, um, 
we were just like one year out of high school. And in fact, our drummer, Matt, was still in high school at the time. Um, so it wasn't uh, as awkward or uncomfortable as it sounds um, when I say that we went to like high schools that were in session and like ran down the halls and threw flyers in classrooms that were in session and stuff. Uh, it sounds weird now, um, but we felt we were like... Th- the same age as those kids at the time. Sure. <laughs> so it wasn't as weird. <laughs> when John joined, John was like 15 or 16. Oh yeah, John was markedly younger, but this was, we were doing all this before John was in the band, but we still did have a high schooler in the band. So it was, it was, it was our, it was our peers, but we were basically marketing to like the shows to, to kids like basically one year younger than us. Yeah. Um, or, you know, just high schoolers in general. Yeah, and it, and it and it worked out, and then and then and I think we had a sold out show, and that's when we were like, I think we can, I think we can ask Link eighty now. I think probably like, I mean, as soon as we had the idea to 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 do the thing, it was I imagine it was our goal to ask you guys if you would do it. <laughs> so uh, you guys were the coolest local band that we kind of knew. So Adam, what was your history with iMusic Cast then? So. For those who don't know, iMusicCast, spelled with a lowercase i, just like a like an iPhone or an iPod, <laughs> um, but no affiliation, no affiliation with Apple. Um, it it was a pretty large venue. Um, it was like a warehouse space on Telegraph Avenue. Um, Brian Matheson ran it. Uh, the idea was that Brian wanted to trick the place out so that you could stream live video and live audio. Um, but it was a lofty goal for the era where when the video came out on the opposite end, um, it was, you know, grainy and small um, by today's standards. Yeah, the, the, the server could basically handle the same capacity as the amount of people that could fit in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um there was a also like a chat room function so there was a screen up on stage like a big old burly oh yeah uh like computer monitor that was running a chat and so while you were playing you could, you could <laughs> see the chat that. which was kind of interesting and kind of fun and i always wanted to interact with it um but like it was dodgy at best and worked half the time yeah and like before we would go on stage brian would always like take a visit into the green room and be like Hey guys, you know the chat. People are, uh, you know, in Ohio requesting songs. You should take a look at it while you're on stage. <laughs> There's no chance, Brian. We're not <laughs> reading reading text while we're in the middle of a set. Yeah, it was such a good way to kill the momentum of a set. Yeah. <laughs> and so you worked as a bodyguard there or bouncer. I played there with Link eighty, and then when Link eighty ended and we started Dessa. Um, I came to just, I think powerhouse, like a hardcore band from Oakland was playing there and I just went to the show and Skylar was running sound and I'd met Skylar cause he had recorded some Dessa demos. And so we were kind of friendly at that point. We weren't like super good friends yet. And he brought me into the show. And so I was just hanging out watching the show. And then Brian noticed that I was, you know, this big guy I was like, Hey, do you want to work security? <laughs> and so i i worked a ton of shows at iMusicast as a as a security guard um and i'd get paid cash under the table at the end of the night so you, you couldn't really beat that and uh eventually i think i did almost every job in that venue um including like running lights and sound and a camera 
the whole place, I mean, Brian, bless his heart, but the whole place was like held together with like duct tape and chicken wire. It was a pretty interesting move uh, to have. Yeah, there, I think this the backdrop on the stage was literally chicken wire. Yeah, it was screen door material. Yeah, okay, okay. And it was all like yeah. crumpled up and you can see videos of it. There's tons of videos of bands playing there. There's a really famous video of My Chemical Romance playing there. Oh, really? Yeah, before they really blew up. Uh-huh. And you can see the the crazy backdrop with the weird uplighting on it. Do you know Brian Matheson's history before a music cast? Uh Brian runs a recording studio, uh had played in a bunch of bands originally from Canada. Um at one point had a beautiful headshots with a beautiful head of hair. Ooh. Um, <laughs> still, I mean, still is Sean, did you know that Brian's actually a super good guitar player? Really? Have you ever heard him play? No, I've never He's heard so him play. Good. <laughs> he plays in like a, a funk band that plays at Burning Man. Oh yeah. And he can play. He's also played with Public Enemy. What? Yeah. <laughs> when? Like recently. Okay. Yeah. But I think it's like Public Enemy 2.0. Like no flavor flav. So he so you're saying he was the flavor flav? No, he was playing guitar. <laughs> he didn't have a <laughs> clock around his neck. No clock. All right, that's fine. So the recording studio in the back, how, was that was that a thing during that that era of the mid early two thousands, or did that come later? Yeah, that was that was there. Legit studio. It's good. Yeah, we re- we recorded some stuff there. The origin story of Narboots is that Brian <laughs> asked Adam if he had a band because they were doing a recording class where they would bring in a band, uh, let them have a free recording session, but they would have to sit and go through the process with a bunch of students and you'd walk out with a couple songs, right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So he, Brian didn't have anybody this week and he asked Adam, Adam's like, I don't have a band, but okay, I'll put together a band. And so he called me up and our friend Bob Vielma and we put together this punk rock band. And then we recorded these three songs at iMusic cast. And then, uh, then we ended up playing a show and recorded and we came in and recorded a few more songs. So, had there been no iMusic cast, there probably would never have been a Narboots. Which means there would have never have been an indefensive ska. Yeah, because one doesn't happen without the other. Yeah, it's all the butterfly effect. <laughs> so now I understand that uh, the you tried to get into Gilman, but they weren't really into you. This is pre-iMusic cast. Yeah, I mean, Gilman was like always the dream uh when we started like passing that demo around to bookers. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, 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 they didn't, they didn't like our, they didn't like our demo at Gilman. Um, And uh, so we had to find, we had to find a different space, but at that time, at that particular time, um, there were a bunch of there were a bunch of bands that were signing to uh, that were signing to labels that were like subsidiaries, like very minor subsidiaries of that were had partial ownership by Warner Music Group or whatever. It was like all the those big labels were like buying up forty nine and a half percent of Epitaph Records and Hopeless Records and all a bunch all the record all the little punk rock record companies and um, Gilman wasn't booking bands um, with the major label affiliation. And that was like all of a sudden a ton of punk bands on indie labels. Um, So 
as it turned out, a lot of bands coming through the Bay Area needed a good place to play. And like I said, the shows were like starting to sell out. So we had like a pretty good pitch um, to get some fairly well-known bands to play a fairly unknown venue. Yeah. So I, I, I like that you didn't just start playing at iMusic Cast. You wanted to create a scene there. Mm-hmm. And so you, you created the live, loud, and local shows. Yeah. This was your guys' idea. Mm-hmm. And what was the idea? Was it just... Um, just shows but i mean was there any any concept behind it um <laughs> yeah no I, I it was uh yeah i don't think there was really a unifying concept i if, if there was any unifying concept it was like uh i think one rule that we set at the beginning was that the opening band like the very first band of of the bill would always be like a high school, a band with like members that were still in high school. So we would give like up and coming, like very young bands a shot at playing in front of people. Um, either that or like a band that was like playing their first gig or something like that. So that, that became, it was actually interesting because we would book these bands. Um, I think 580 West was one of those bands that was just like high school kids um, that like, we would book these bands that nobody heard of. Uh, and we had like, we had some friends that were still, that were in various high schools that would like listen to all the demos coming out of their high schools and like give us the good ones and tell us yeah. bands were actually like played a cool party last weekend or whatever, you know? Um, and we would just like get those bands to open, to open the bill. And like the, the thing that happened there was like their friends would be so stoked to see their their buddy's band play actually in front of people. They would actually turn up early. And one thing that's always really tough on a bill is to get, even at a sold out show, to get an audience to turn up when doors open. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that was one of the tricks that like, that really kind of made it uh, feel really homespun and local. I think that was what that was at one point that all the L's stood for something. And I think the local was like the, the, you know, uh, the, making sure there was always like a young local band opening the bill, but yeah, yeah. Kids turned out like for, to, to get there for doors, which you just don't often see at local shows. So that, so that w- really worked out. And then, you know, we, we, we ran it. Um, and we, when, when it started, we played like the first four or five shows. Um, but like, uh, after that, we would make sure there's a good, a good headliner, and we would just like be the promoters between when we played, and we'd play like every two or three months after after that. And then we started going on tour, um, and we had some friends in town uh, that like kind of took care of it for the next year or two or three, and then it it sort of got looser and disbanded a little bit um, when we when the matches ended up on tour um, full time, but. Uh, yeah, it was like, there was a, there was a good, there was a good like four or five year run in there where it really felt like every weekend you could just go to that place and see something interesting. So Adam, from your point of view at the iMusic cast, when the matches got involved, did that change this club or this venue significantly? I mean, I don't know if it changed it significantly because I didn't get 
involved in it until they were already involved in it. Okay. But I mean, the main tent poles that I could see there were uh, Brian had a, a church group that would rent the place out on Sundays and that would pack out. And then that church group got too big for the space. And then the other big tent pole was the L3 shows that were guaranteed to sell out every time, kind of regardless of who was playing. Cause it was just like, everybody would come to see their friends bands and the bands were usually like, you know, good or, or pretty well known. What are some of the bands that played L3? Mm. Zebrahead. Zebrahead played of some of the local bands. Uh, Local AM was one of the bigger and better local bands um, that played it frequently. And now Aaron, do you know who Local AM was? No. So that's Ricky Reed's old band. Oh, hell yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. Kind of like what, how would you describe the music they played Adam? <laughs> Do I have to? It was like, uh, <laughs> it was like prog hip hop, ska hardcore. <laughs> yeah. It like turned in, it, it like turned more and more prog as it like, as it progressed. I think it started pretty ska. That's kind of actually the same as the same as the matches, sort of. So, did the matches have ska elements early on? Yeah, when we started out, we just like straight up played like punk reggae. We were basically like sounded like we wanted to sound like Sublime. <laughs> but this, you're talking about the locals, yeah, the locals, yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you guys ever play any Sublime covers or any uh, Op Ivy covers? Uh, yeah, we did. We did. Uh, I mean, we used to play a bunch of Op IP covers. We used to play a bunch of Sublime covers too. Yeah. I mean, when we were in high school, it was like mostly covers. Um, and then it wasn't until we started playing out that we like thought, oh, maybe we should write some original songs. Um, yeah. Back in the high school days, it was mostly covers. When you were starting this band, what was your... What was your influences, particularly the uh, sky influences? Mostly Rancid, uh, but we weren't like we weren't as punk rock as Rancid. So our Rancid influences just turned mostly into the ska side of Rancid, Time Bomb and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, we'd go see Rancid and Green Day um, and uh, Link 80 Uh yeah, they were those were like the big to me those were like the big 3 local bands. Uh I remember going when I was in high school I remember going to see the Blast Bandits. Um Yeah. Now the locals first show ever was in Bosnia. <laughs> it's true, in Sarajevo. <laughs> <laughs> I love that footage of you guys in the documentary playing over there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we. I was. Uh, I had some Photoshop skills, and I photoshopped an audience in front of, in front of us, like playing in Justin Sansusi's backyard, and just like made it look like we were on stage at like Bill Graham Civic or something like that. <laughs> they they wanted to get. They were trying to get like an American band like Sum Forty One to headline a tour over there with with a big uh with a big band from Bosnia. So was there a big band from Bosnia on that show? They were called Drugostanya. They were great. Nice. It means uh, that the name translates to pregnant nun. <laughs> so what did they sound like? 
um, they were they were like sort of uh, oh man, they were sort of like like uh, there was uh, they were like kind of like doom slog like just like halftime <laughs> heavy rock. Yeah, yeah, perfect match for you guys. Female lead singer. Nice. Uh, she was excellent. Yeah. How many shows? Was it one or was it multiple shows? No, we did like a, we did a tour over there. We like, I think it was six or seven cities culminating in like a festival in Sarajevo. Yeah. That is crazy. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was nuts. What, uh, what size audiences would you play in front of? Uh, the, I mean the festival, we were, we were like headlined the main stage. So it was a, a few thousand people, probably 4,000. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and we had and we had never played uh in front of more people than would like fit in justin sensu's backyard for a birthday party before that so so how did that go like being that first time being on stage in front of that many people i think we were pretty awful but like something that we discovered then and just like sort of peddled until the end was that like you can be pretty awful if you like headbang a lot and run around the stage and kick over and <laughs> people buy it. <laughs> so when you um, would play your ska stuff, yeah, uh, did the crowd? Did they know how to skank? Were they? Did they know what to do for the music? Yeah, I, yeah, it worked. I mean, it worked. It worked. Did any? Did any of the kids that came to our music cast know how to like properly skank? I would say probably not. <laughs> You figure it out. There's an energy in the music, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, the, 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 like the metal heads in, in Bosnia didn't know what to, didn't know what to make of us. Luckily our lead guitar player like could shred. So we, we got enough. We won over enough people not to like get booed out of the place or get vegetables thrown at us. This was the original lead guitar player, right? Yes. Yeah. Why did he leave? Uh, he went to he went to school. Okay. Yeah. How'd that um, work out for him? Which I guess is a common thing that some people How'd do after graduating high school. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you still talk to him? No, I haven't talked to him in years. He was one of my best friends in high school. Um, but yeah, I haven't talked to him in years. Okay, and then, and then you guys got John, who is also a shredder. Yeah, and we were like looking kind of specifically for the the skill set that our that our old player Matt Esposito had um and uh John John had it John was a shredder too um and he was <laughs> and he was also younger than many of our fans which I I felt like at the time you know like we started doing L3 like I said when we were when we were 19 we were like basically advertising it to 16 through 18 year olds basically um because all of our friends most of our friends like our guitar player went to school and we did not um and uh so it when we when we found john and when we realized that john was joining the band at age 15 um and by that time you know we're 
19. Well, no, I said we started doing it when we were 19. So we would have been like 20, maybe even pushing 21. At that point, like we're no longer running through high school <laughs> hallways. Like that was good for about a year. Um, and, you know, you're like, oh, man, like my friends are now getting close to graduating college with degrees like what am i doing with my life and then and then we found john and we were like well if one of our members is is younger than our fans <laughs> still i guess we bought ourselves another year or two here <laughs> i think that was one of the most interesting things about playing music is that uh you know you start playing and everybody's you know high school age or just out of high school yeah and then a lot of the fans go off to college and then you're still playing in a band, right? And then a no, new group of young kids finds out about uh-huh. you, and they graduate and they go to college. <laughs> it's just this like weird cycle where you just keep getting older, yeah. And and there's like a weird diminishing return of audience. Uh-huh. And when they and when they go to college, <laughs> like they no longer then they they start listening to um, like Stephen Malcolmus, and you have to make that whole new batch of fans. And the and then the interesting and then of course when they are like out of college then they get nostalgic and start listening to punk rock again but like and so they come back to your shows but there is that you do lose right. everybody for four years when they find out about Sonic Youth <laughs> yeah when they find out about Sonic Youth and weed yes. <laughs> they're gone for four years <laughs> I like the idea though that you you give this thing a name you make cool looking flyers. And you, you get extremely enthusiastic about promoting it and it attracts people. People want to be part of it. If you just said we're doing live music here and you were half ass about it, you know, you wouldn't have built a scene, but, and it's not like the shows would have been all that different, but you, you do these steps to make it something special. You name it, you know, you, you, you show your, you show your own interest in it and, and people come to it. People want to be part of it. You know, we found our demographic and the demographic like was not the like cool punk rock venue that had been, uh, you know, the the famed Lord uh, Bay Area punk rock venue that we dreamed of playing. It was this weird webcasting space <laughs> instead of Gilman. <laughs> um, but like there was there was a there was a certain there were all these kids that like just like us were playing in garages and not didn't really you know were also sending their tapes to gilman and gilman was like yeah it's not really interesting enough and like yeah maybe our, maybe like maybe this the scene that we found was like there was like a diet cokeness to it you know what i mean like it was it was it wasn't it didn't it wasn't as teen center as the Oasis. It wasn't like a teen center, but like <laughs> it, was close. it was pretty close. And we had like bad bands. Like we had a bunch of bad bands play the bills, but then we also had a bunch of really good bands come through town and play the bills. And you would see like this spectrum of like bad bands that had a hundred people in the audience that were stoked to see their friends like fail or try not to fail, whatever it was. Uh, and and then, and then the headliner would be Sugar Colts or something. You know what I mean? Like it was, it what we did. We just did. We just found all of the other, all of the other kids that were in their garages, separate, trying to do the same thing that we were. And there were a, 
ton of them. Did the matches ever play Gilman? Um, no, we never played there. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) He has literally played every other Bay Area venue. Is that true? I feel like I don't think so. You know, I want to. Did Maniac play Gilman? I want to say I've been on stage at Gilman, but it might have just been like with one of your bands, Adam, or maybe Maniac played there. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think Maniac, I think Maniac did a show there. I've been on that stage, but yeah, yeah. I don't think the matches have ever played it. Yeah. I mean, you guys even played like Ashkanas. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Do you know that venue, Aaron? No. It's like halfway down the block from Gilman. <laughs> What? It's like kind of like a reggae club. <laughs> it's like a, it's definitely like a world music space. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was the first place I saw you guys play as the matches. Uh huh. With the phenomenons. <laughs> hey, that was as close as we ever got to playing Gilman. <laughs> 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 Probably went to a Gilman show when we got off stage. <laughs> the only show I ever saw on iMusic Cast was um was in two thousand five. It was RX Bandits, Mike Park, Dan P, and Dessa. Yeah. The Plea for Peace bike tour. The Plea for Peace bike tour. Obviously, you were there, Adam. Were you, were you there, Sean? Or was the matches was like the matches that were out touring at this point? I think we were on tour then, but I remember I remember that tour. Was this considered a, an L3 show or was it just a show? That was just a show. Yeah. It was a good show. I mean, when RX Bandits would come through it would always do well. And then the really kind of crummy thing was that, you know, Dessa was really tight with the matches and tight with RX bandits. And sometimes the matches would play Friday and RX bandits would play Saturday and we would open both shows. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like double dipping. Yeah. Nothing like completely burning out your audience. <laughs> so Sean, you went to high school with Matt Bettinelli Alpin. Yes. This is a link eighties first guitarist. Yeah. Uh-huh. So were you guys in school at the same time or did you just go to the same school? Um, his sister was definitely. Yeah. Yeah. His sister was like, his sister was really good friends with our drummer with Matt Whalen. Um, but I think that Matt was, I think he was a senior when we were freshmen or maybe, or no, maybe he was, maybe he was. Yeah. We, we were at the school at the same time. He was like, he was like one of the few people that were really nice to freshmen me. <laughs> <laughs> at that school yeah. did you know of link 80 first before him or did you know him before link 80 uh i knew he was in link 80 yeah 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 so you were aware of link 80 first and it, he was also in your school mm-hmm. mm-hmm. so was he like a celebrity to you yes totally <laughs> and i was shocked at like how sweet and nice he was yeah yeah totally what was your exposure like? When did you first hear about Link Eighty? Then um, I would have heard it from I. Most of my like early punk rock discovery came from our bass player Justin Sansusi. I don't know how he. I don't know where he found out about music. I want to say like Justin's dad. Yeah. Like was what is the Justin's dad connection? Like somehow Justin's dad was like, "Hey guys." My my buddy's sons have a band, a band I think you like. Like Justin's dad was was just like the, our own personal Aaron Axelson. He would just like bring us demo CDs, and we would just like fall in love with bands and be like, "What? Your taste is so good, Mister Sansusi." <laughs> Two things to say to that: one, the perfect, pitch perfect uh, impression of 
of his dad sounds exactly like him Two, his dad always seems to be like totally in the know yeah i mean his dad is really cool his dad's a his dad is a professional painter um yeah and like you know put all of his kids through school uh on on painting badass watercolors so like this dude's cool yeah i was always blown away that you and and uh justin are such good artists well, I mean, he's got the pedigree. My mom was just a children's art teacher, but it helps, I guess, having the supplies at your house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I used to go over to Justin's house. Like me and I would go over to Justin's house. We would like write some songs, like track some stuff on his four track and then and try to figure out how that thing worked where the, like the music played backwards on one side of the tape. That thing was wild. Um, and then uh, and then we would like go down to the basement and just like watch his dad paint for an hour or two. It was cool yeah one of the other aspects of these l3 shows was you guys would make these insane posters Mm -hmm. where you you guys would make the art and then you would go make like color photocopies of these things yeah did you ever pull the kinko's trick to like get free copies or do you guys have a scam or do you just pay for them um wait what's the trick well you used to be able to they they had a cartridge they had to plug into the the copier and then it had like a had like a little like counter that would tick like and you could drop it and it would pop the spring inside of it <laughs> really and it would reset it and so then you could like say oh I, I made 10 copies and really you made 500 oh wow yeah no that's that's good i would i i would have um i went to catholic school i would have been afraid i was going to hell <laughs> 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 we would like we would like sell them for a few dollars to make back the the whole the whole like the whole merch game was was to try to it was basically like if we can just break even it took us a like a long time to figure actually the matches just never figured out that we could have been doing anything more than breaking even until until we broke up and realized that we didn't have any of our um songs licensed oh you're gonna spoil the whole movie oh oh mm. yeah <laughs> should we take that part out <laughs> no no let's, let's spoil the movie more let's spoil the movie but, any, but anyway but like from those kinko's days it was just like man if you can like if we can go print up like 500 flyers but we can print up 10 of them in color and sell those for five dollars a piece that pays for all of our flyers you know so yeah um, that felt like a felt like a cheat enough you know yeah. Well, I want, let's spoil the part of the movie where you tour with Real Big Fish. Yeah. So Adam has told this story before. But then you told it on the documentary. Yeah, but, you, <laughs> but I think, Adam, you heard it from him before the documentary? Yes, Sean just told it to me in person. So <laughs> before we discuss this specific show, so you guys, got, you guys got to tour with Real Big Fish because you were playing this. No, so you're playing this show, and uh, there's nobody there except like a few people. And one of them is Vince from um, the real big fish manager. Yes. And um, he also gave you a, his sound system to play the show. Cause there was no sound system. Yeah. Like we drove all the way to Fullerton on a, on a tour and showed up at a coffee shop and they're like, we don't have, well, where's your PA? <laughs> We're like, what? We're a band on tour that you booked. And uh, they're like, okay, well have fun like playing acoustic. That's what most people do in our coffee shop. What are you doing? And, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, uh, and, and a dude there drinking coffee was like, what, what, what's your, what's your, what's your deal? You're looking for a PA. I've got one down the street. I'll be right back. 
And this dude, Vince, showed up with a PA and we pulled it out of his car, set up at this coffee shop. And like, of course, like there were a few people there drinking coffee. And then so Vince also like called 20 people. I don't know how he knew 20 people that would like come to a thing at the drop of a hat, but like an audience also showed up because of this guy (laughs) and they listened to us. And then like at the end of the show, he he was like holding up his phone and uh to like while we were playing he was like holding his phone in the air and then at the end of the at the end of the show he was like hey uh i was just holding up my phone to the singer of real big fish and he said he he said that he liked how your show sounded do you want to come on tour (laughs) just like that wait (laughs) yeah 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 i mean like we just thought this was like a, a a crazy man who happened to have a pa but he was he was that, but he was also the manager of a big band. <laughs> That's like such a weird like movie moment. Yeah, absolutely. Like that doesn't even sound real. No, I know. And so that was like the one of the first big tours you guys did, right? That was yeah. That was that was the first. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, we had done a couple self book thing, but but yeah, that was the first like actual play at house of blues kind of venues yeah, yeah yeah for sure okay so tell us about this one particular show on the tour what did real big fish do oh well they just they had this they had this wonderful uh a reverence about uh just i don't know their approach to basically everything they did but there was there was one night um on the tour they played uh they played their song they came on stage. Somebody, somebody shouted out like after their first song in their set. Somebody shouted out one of the, one of their big singles, uh, like way before you're gonna hear the single in a set list. I mean, like if they didn't come out playing it, you wait a few songs and then you know. But somebody shouts out "Sell Out" and they're like, "Wait, you, you want to play it? All right, okay, we'll play." It. They played it, and then somebody shouted out uh, their next biggest song called "Beer." And they're like, eh, okay, all right. If you insi- if you know what's good for you, audience, we will play that now. <laughs> and then so they played their two biggest singles. And it was like, it, we're just watching from the side of the stage because at that point, like we, we couldn't even get, uh, you know, it was like all we could do to try to like make a set list and actually get from like song one to song eight, like without everything falling apart and screwing up half of the songs and forgetting lyrics and messing up guitar chords and stuff. So like at that point, like seeing them, seeing their set a few nights in a row and then seeing this happen, we're like, Whoa, wait, wait, wait. They're just like taking requests from the audience. What is this? What is this magic? You know? And then, and then, uh, and then somebody shouted out, sell out again when they (laughs) finished beer. And they're like, what do you, what do you, okay but what okay we'll play that again and then they they counted in and played sell out again and then they finish that song and somebody some wise ass in the audience shouted out beer again and they played that and then they played sell out and beer back to back to back to back two songs over and over i'd say they played each song seven times and then <laughs> left the stage the crowd was just like sort of stunned like there was there were waves like they the crowd at first was like, this is amazing. And then they were like, oh, but there were some other songs that we were hoping to hear tonight. And it, it just wasn't going to happen at that point. They're like, what? And they really like lost the crowd. Everybody went to the bar and just like stopped dancing. And then like, 
some people would there would be like a group of people that would like get get the crowd back into it and they but the band was just they were on their track at that point and they were just loving life um on stage doing those two songs and then and then uh and then they walked off stage the crowd like reticently decided to chant for an encore they came back on stage played both of those songs two more times and <laughs> called it a night it was wild i'd never seen anything like it uh yeah it was it was just like such a lesson and like if every night every night can't be the same um on tour and 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 like it's a bummer you kind of it you there this thing happens where you like really dial in a set list and things can get really tight like you see like when green day plays a stadium show like they've got it like that whole thing is like is planned out to the to the nearest like stomp of a chuck taylor you know what i mean <laughs> but but like when you see the show a few times you're like oh eh. There's like a little, a little bit of the magic is lost. You really just want to see that Green Day tour one time, right? Like, but real big fish. Like they would have people that people would follow them regionally. People would see four or five shows in a row. Like, and they would just like do their own Midwest version of the tour. And it was like this thing. We started to see like, oh, if you just like, if you if you change it up night to night and like are reactive and do this thing with your audience, like you can kind of create this sense of community while on the road uh playing for people that you really that you maybe get to play for once or twice a year um but like they have this experience of like i gotta go back to that show because who the fuck knows what's gonna happen and um you know we tried to like we tried to pick up on some of that i can't say that we ever like got that (laughs) We, we never delivered a story that good for one of our opening bands but like it was it was uh it was inspirational. Did, what were the other shows like? Was it, I mean, obviously it wasn't that, but what was it? Did they have a specific set? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. The, I mean, that show was special because we'd seen the first few shows of the tour. It was basically the same set list. Um, but, you know, over the course of, we did a, we did a few tours with them um, in our time as the matches. Um, they, they brought us to Europe another time. Um, yeah. And they would just like, they would just all they would switch it up there was there was there was a time um you know one night they'd just like play all of their all of their like their like big band they like pl- would play everything like more big band style or whatever they they were really good musicians so they would just like switch things up in weird ways um Aaron would just shred extra long and try to sing like Frank Sinatra sometimes it, they were they were bizarre they were weird dudes <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> now I remember one of the tours Matt uh-huh. Matt Whalen messaging me via AOL instant messenger uh-huh. and telling me about Justin flipping out on stage can we talk about this at all or will Justin get mad I mean yeah I think we can talk about it what happened <laughs> um we it was on that real big fish tour um and there was a there was a uh an a&r person coming to see us from rick rubin's record label american records um this is before we so we basically got on the radar of record labels because we were some unknown band opening this uh this you know 45 date u.s tour um and 
selling a ton of CDs out of our backpacks, you know, yeah. <laughs> and like, uh, uh, so we had, we started to get calls from Epitaph and, uh, and, 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 and some other labels, uh, and some major labels and, uh, and Rick Rubin was among them. And so he sent a, he sent a, an A&R guy out and, uh, we had yet, to, we had yet to meet this guy, but we knew that he was going to be there and we were playing like some Knights of Columbus venue. Um, like, it, so like a vet's hall. Yeah. Vet's hall. Um, like pretty big room probably a thousand kids in there um, in like Philadelphia, I want to say and uh, opening for real big fish. And uh, we got on stage and when you're the, when you're the opening band, they will tell you uh, like the sound guy will be like, all right, our changeover is 15 minutes and your set is 20 minutes or something like that. Right. And then if you eat, if you're set up, takes more than 15 minutes basically that is subtracted from your actual set sure time. so we're setting up and there's like some sound problem we had so much technical difficulties all of the time but uh justin's bass was not like ready to go and we we're trying to troubleshoot it he's using different cables etc and the guy's like your set's now 15 minutes you know and we're like but, but somebody's here from rick rubin's record label and we we now we get that's one and a half less songs we get to play all right all right and so we're like trying to help him and he's kind of you know he's freaking out trying to fix his tech stuff and like the crowd is antsy and we're freaking out and 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 you know the guy's like all right 12 12 minutes and we're like okay we're playing four songs now what uh, uh and matt was just like let's i mean justin can catch up like yeah, the song is not going to sound as good without a bass guitar, but like we still have two guitars and drums, you know, like let's just, he can join us. And so he counts us in and I stepped up to the microphone to sing the first lines of this song, Dog-Eared Page, which starts with just my vocal. And so I go, I'm just a dog-eared. And then we like all hit on the one when I say the word page and I felt justin's foot like enter my butt crack and i was like whoa and my face hit the microphone like my tooth like hit the mic and then like i realize i'm like in the front row my like folding microphone stand in front of me and my guitar has like toppled onto the crowd along with me and like matt immediately stops playing drums so like you hear this like uh there's just this void and then like john devoto is just like still furiously strumming his guitar and singing harmonies (laughs) 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 the only one making noise on the stage and then and then he kind of like peters off on the guitar like this is not getting put back together justin takes his bass guitar turns around and swings the bass guitar into the drum kit and it went through the kick, it like went through the skin of the head of the kick drum that said the matches on it. Face <laughs> like, guitar goes through that. And uh, Matt ran off stage. And so we no longer had a drummer on stage. I'm like climbing back on onto stage, like totally stunned. Like what? And he's like, I'm not ready. And everyone's just stunned. Like the whole vets hall is just crickets. There's like the feedback of John's guitar. And I just like, 
<laughs> Justin walks up to the mic and I I actually didn't climb all the way back onto stage. I realized like that's the last place that I want to be is in front of these people and we no longer have a drummer. So like what is going to happen? So I walked out through the crowd because <laughs> I was scared to go back on stage. And then it was just Justin on the stage and he's like breathing heavy like the Hulk. <laughs> And just sort of like realizing where he was after his like fit of rage uh, and where he was, was on stage alone in front of a thousand kids in a vet hall. <laughs> and, and somewhere out there, Rick Rubin's A&R guy who will be reporting back. <laughs> and Justin is at that point, I, I like some, something like, some like recognition that he had of like, well, what, what happens on stage when you're standing in front of a microphone? And he goes, I'm fucking angry (laughs) into the microphone. Still crickets out there, a little squeal of the guitar. And then he goes, repeat after me. I'm fucking angry. And like the kids in the audience are like, I'm, fucking angry <laughs> like the place is a hostage to this situation it was so bizarre and i was on the side of the stage by that point and like me and matt and john matt was like we're done we're done we're done and the sound guy's like what's going on and matt was like call it next band house music <laughs> and the house music came up and justin came up stage we did not touch <laughs> the stage again after that and we were like, oh, man, it's o- it's over. It's over. Like our dreams of making a record with Rick Rubin are shot. The weird ca- caveat to that, though, is a few months later. Yes. Or maybe uh, it could have been weeks later. I, I pull up to iMusicCast. I get out of my car. There's a crowd of people milling around. It's after a matches show. And I see this guy that looks like Rick Rubin walking around. I'm like, that's weird because I've been hearing about Rick Rubin having interest in you guys, American records. I walk up and your manager goes, Adam, come here. I'd like you to meet Rick Rubin. And it's Rick Rubin. And I was like, Hey man, I thought you looked like Rick Rubin. And he laughed and he's like, Hey, nice to meet you. So even after that insane performance that didn't even happen, there was still interest. I think actually in that, I think so the call that went back to him was like, wow, these guys are really punk. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Man. Yep. (laughs) So you had several labels interested in you, but you chose epitaph. Can you walk us through the decision process there? Well, yeah, I I will also say that like, oddly we got introduced to Brett Gerwitz of epitaph um via rick rubin (laughs) which is a really weird way uh to come to that label i think but uh brett (laughs) brett was next door neighbors with rick rubin in uh down in uh, off the sunset strip in in hollywood um and when rick so rick liked our band like adam said he came down to to see us at L3 eventually after hearing those reports that we were so punk rock. And then, um, and, but we had some, like, we had some, like, m- major label hesitance 
we were like, what, but what they, you know, he, he was, he was like, yeah, we'll, we'll pick a single off of this record that you guys recorded yourselves and we'll go to radio with it. And then if that does well, then, and then we'll do a, an album with me after that. Um, and you know, like if the singles do well, then you get to keep making music. And we were like, I don't know if we have like a single on here. We weren't really thinking like, oh man, we got to do a single. Um, when we recorded this record, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's on here. And he's like, no, it's on here. And we're like, well, we trust you, but like, I don't know. It, that seems like a weird, I, it, I work pretty comfortable, like touring and, and, uh, making fans like touring. I think we might need to make a couple records before we like are good enough <laughs> to go to the, do the radio thing. I don't know, man. Like it was just, I don't know if we were right or wrong, but like, um, he was like, Oh, so you want to like be on like an indie label? And we we're like, yeah. And he was like, well, I live next door to the guy that, uh, runs epitaph records. And we're like, wait, what really? <laughs> and he was like, yeah, I could, I could, I could introduce you. I'd still like to do a record with you, but like, you know, maybe you do a couple records with them first. And we're like, that sounds like a cool way of doing things. So, yeah, there was like no, there was like no contract and we just got the introduction and then like, you know, by the time we did, we like did our third record with Epitaph and then we were, our record deal was over with Epitaph and we we're like, Hey Rick, you want to do a record now? And he's like, nah, <laughs> nah time, time passed. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd always wow. wondered how that because I knew that there was like a weird option for for American at some point in there, but it was just like a handshake sort of thing. It was, yeah, it was like it was like we'll all be friends. Yeah, that that required us to like get massively more popular, which is something we didn't consider. <laughs> was there any backlash for signing to Epitaph? Because I think at that time, Epitaph were an indie, but they were also sort of considered by some punks to be too big yeah i think so but like we you have to like remember that like from from our like very first time submitting to the to the booker at gilman we were like considered to be not really not really fully punk rock material too so like it it felt like whatever backlash epitaph records, we were definitely less punk rock than epitaph records. <laughs> so if they wanted to like sully their good punk rock name by signing us, like that wasn't going to be our problem, but we, we loved like the label and a, and a bunch of the bands on it. So it was like a total honor to be there, but yeah, we never felt like we were as punk rock as epitaph. So if anybody was considering that epitaph was not punk rock, like they would have already decided that about us like long before that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I think, I think that, um, I think that, uh, I th think that the, the big, like, um, soul search over, um, over like autonomy and, uh, of, uh, like, ownership of your of your own stuff and and uh and just sort of like the whole sold out moniker i mean that was real big fish's like title title track that was like their their hit song was called sell out yeah um and so like the, i think that that was sort of like the former uh the former generation of bands like the ones that 
that we idolized or that like took us out on tour that was like their their big kind of uh soul searching crisis rancid and green day and real big fish and stuff they were very consumed with it for us we were just like happy to be playing and we didn't didn't understand that as as much um you know i don't know maybe the whole thing had already been like corporatized enough or uh i mean you knew when something was like you knew when something was like yucky and weird like nobody would nobody would like do like a mcdonald's song or something like that but you know if somebody would fund you if somebody would fund your record like you were stoked to be able to make some music by the time i got into it you know in 2022 sean would you do the mcdonald's uh-huh. song <laughs> the mcdonald's song <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i think i probably probably not yeah probably not i don't know i don't think so do i have to do that i think i got I mean, if it's just like a ridiculous amount of money, that might be that might be like the weird place that I draw the line. I don't know. Yeah, maybe not. What if it's a remake of a Rock and Roll McDonald's? <laughs> well, then you have to do it. Then you have to do it. <laughs> yeah. The second album, Decomposer, you worked with different producers, multiple producers. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Let's talk about um, a couple of them. You worked with. So, what was it like working with Tim Armstrong? Uh, that was, that was excellent. Um, we actually worked with Tim. We worked with him in a few places. We worked in his home studio, um, to do some demos. Uh, and then we went to Skyline right behind iMusicCast where this conversation started and, uh, and recorded in, in Brian's studio and, uh, Lars Fredrickson and Matt Freeman all showed up and hung out at iMusicCast for the day. It was amazing. (laughs) What about uh, John Feldman from Goldfinger? Feldy was interesting. What was interesting about his approach? <laughs> <laughs> he's Feldy is a uh, he's um, of all the producers that I ever worked with. He is like by far the most controlling one. Like I feel like Feldy has a sound himself, sure. and you kind of like work with Feldy to get that sound. Um, and like, if that's not what you want to sound like, or if that's not what you want a certain song to sound like, then like, don't do it with Feldy. Cause he has a, definitely has, has a style, um, that's like more than just a workflow. It's like a, a sound, a set of sounds that he does. Um, so yeah, he felt Feldy, like Feldy and Matt Whalen didn't get along. Um, I think like Matt stormed out of that session a few times and like or like Feldy kicked him out or or both which is kind of wild when I say that like Matt Whalen is the most mild-mannered dude sure. in the world um was this over clash of ideas it wasn't even ideas it was just like Feldy being like I don't want you to play your you won't play to my metronome and let me replace all of your drum sounds with um bleeps and blops and Matt was like, okay, well, you don't need me. Then I'm going to go to the movies with my friends. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and he would come back and you like, how's the song coming? Are there drums in it yet? And you're like, oh, this kind of sound like drums. What are those? <laughs> Who ended up playing drums? Uh, the drums are like a bunch of weird Feldy percussion, like samples that he drops on, on over things. And then I, uh, the drummer, that like oh yeah feldy will only 
will only record. I think this was around the time. If you want to do live drums, his guy, Dean Butterworth, has to play the drums. Mm. Mm -hmm. Dean's played in like a bunch. I think like (laughs) Dean might be like out with Paul McCartney now or something like that. Like (laughs) he's that he's that dude. But like, you know it's feldy feldy was like i've i've recorded my last my last drummer it's it's dean and samples from here on out <laughs> yeah it was it was, wow. it was it was it was definitely weird i don't know if we ever even like yeah matt whalen came in and like played percussion on a toaster <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think ironically but then it actually like made it into the song paper cut skin but uh, we were like, we were like, can can Matt like play something here, please? It was it was weird. It was weird. Um, and also like, Feldy really likes to. I mean, he's just like he's a lead singer, man. He wants to like write the song. He wants to write the song with you mm-hmm. or for you in some cases. Um, so, but I think that the stuff we did with him actually turned out really interesting slash good um but like i i could we couldn't have done a full album with him just like too little matt whalen and like also just the songs didn't turn out the way that we intended them to but that said like you know there's some of our more popular songs too so i i don't mean to like disparage them as songs i think feldy's a really weird creative guy just when you record with him he becomes a member of your band so what was Tim from Rancid's like? He didn't help write the song then with you. It was just yeah, no, we wrote with Tim, but we really wanted we really wanted to write sure. with Tim. Like uh, I was, I don't get me wrong, I was also a Goldfinger fan, but uh, but it wasn't like oh man, I dream of one day writing a song with with John Feldman. It just as a songwriter, I mean, I like I like his songs, but you know, you know, but Tim Armstrong, like good lord, I wanted to write a song with him. Yeah. Um. I think Tim's an amazing songwriter. Uh, and yeah, we wrote, we wrote both of the songs with, with Tim, which involved like just starting from scratch and voluntarily like using Tim as a, as basically as much of a band member as he like would, would like to be. Um, but he's, he's, he was, um, he was really interesting. He was like getting into like, sampling and looping he was recording a lot of transplant stuff at the time so i think that that kind of part of tim's sound came out in the stuff we were doing and we were stoked on that um yeah at that point that was like basically for our third record i think one of tim's songs got on our second record too it's kind of one big long session that turned into two records there but um but uh yeah we were i mean every we were all experimenting with like this new all of the new things that we could do with our new toy pro tools, you mm-hmm. know, um, t- Tim included. And he had a, he had a cool sense of some interesting things to do with loops and, and stuff. Uh, so that was fun. Yeah. What was the energy like? Like what, what was the atmosphere that he created? It was pretty casual and low key. Like he, he wouldn't, um, he would kind of, uh, he would kind of almost like, he was he was running pro tools um but he would just sort of like noodle on guitar in the corner like with like while running pro tools and once in a while he'd hit record and like some i like my guitar was plugged in and he'd like make a loop out of something that i had done and then he'd be like hey check this out you know 
Um, and then, and then we'd listen to it and go, Oh, that's cool. That's cool. And then he'd like throw out a lyrical idea and then we, and then the rest of us would like mess with it for a while. And then he would, and then kind of forget he's in the room. And then like an hour later, he's like, what if you did this? You know, like he was pretty, he was very low key. He wasn't like, all right, here's what we're going to do. What do you want it to sound like? He was, he didn't really talk about the like nuts and bolts of what you want to make. Um, which, which was, which was different. You just like show up and make what you make. Um, but, uh, 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 yeah, I remember when, when, uh, when, when Lars and Matt Freeman came to, you know, Tim knew that we were like a big fan of, of his whole band. Um, and so he got those guys to come in cause we had a, a like a, like a backup vocal gang vocal day. Um, and he was like, "Oh, I'll get my guys to come," and we just thought that was like so cool. Uh, so they sh- they showed up at Skyline, and I remember um, uh, we were doing the gang vocals, and we were like all in all in one room, and you know, Tim's kind of like on the quiet side, and and it just in general. So like a bunch of people get in a room, and it's like you know he's he just kind of like disappeared in the in that room and then at some point like we're all just like talking and playing back the song and and recording things and and then Lars was like guys 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 Tim has an idea and we just like all looked and like Tim was in the corner of the room and he had like his guitar like he was like on a swivel chair and he had to get his like knees tucked up to his chin and has a guitar on his lap and he's like no, 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 no. It's cool. And Lars was like, I know that look, man. What's your idea? And he's like, okay. And he like walked over to the control desk and like changed around the like the order of the verse and the chorus. And then we played it back and it was like, whoa, magic. You know, like you could, you could tell those guys like definitely had studio chemistry and that, and that Lars as like the outspoken loud dude knew when to tell the room to shut up because the quiet, genius had an idea you know that was cool (laughs) amazing yeah (laughs) the story of the matches that is captured in your documentary what i was really struck with was the sense of community that you built and uh closeness that you you guys created with your fans Mm -hmm. and like i think a lot of bands talk about this it's almost cliche to say that Oh, our fans are like our family or, you know, being a fan of this band is like being a member of this band that was said in the movie. But I feel like with you guys, it's it's true. It's not a cliche. It's not an exaggeration. Mm-hmm. And um, when we did those shows opening for you, yeah, I could see that it was true that the the fans that came, it was extremely meaningful to them to be part of the matches reunion and um, to see you guys again, to see the other people in the fan the other fans that they had developed relationships with tell me a little bit about how and why you went that route because it seems to me like you went above and beyond um you know to create that create that relationship with your fans i mean to where it was like you would you would pass out flyers in person you would you would go outside of the venues and play acoustic shows after playing a normal show like it seemed like the the, the create, creating of that you know feedback loop energy with your fans was was a high priority. Yeah, I I mean I think that the whole thing, I think that 
L3 starting with like, I don't know, that recognition that we weren't like particularly a special or like, you know, we didn't, we weren't, we weren't like that band that had the sound that was going to change a generation of music or something like, you know, we weren't like, we weren't a group of, of, uh, of geniuses that needed to like hide in a, in a green room or something like that. Like the power that, that I think that we wielded was, um, that, that there were a bunch of, there were a bunch of kids out in the audience that were like, you know, that had bands that were like mediocre with a high upside possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And, uh, and that, you know, I don't know, you, you just like, I, we were never really like, uh, we were never really a, a dressing room, a dressing room band. Um, you know, it was neat to like, it was neat to play shows with, with, you know, Rancid or, or Link 80 or like bands that we really wanted to meet and like spend time with. But like, as soon as you like meet and spend time with, (laughs) with, with, uh, with musicians and artists that you like feel like, Oh man, I just want to get in the same room as those people and do what they're doing. Like you, you kind of, I don't know. You don't want to, you don't really want to know that much too much about, uh, about artists that you, that you admire it's kind of easier to like just go and play outside or 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 i don't know listen to go and go sit in fans cars and listen to their bands demos or whatever i don't know it just feels like you're like giving back in a way that that uh that you know we can all like flag these like little these little moments that we had when we felt like oh man this dude's really nice. This Matt Bettinelli Open is like very, very like open to like hearing about my band at my school where everybody beats me up. That's cool. You know, like, I don't know. You just want to be that guy. You don't want to be the, the tortured, um, the artist. Oh, that's no fun, you know? So. Yeah. Because it seems like as much as the people that came to your reunion shows cared about your music, it's like they cared about something more than your music too. Yeah. Like it's the, there's meaning in, in the, in the community and meaning in the scene itself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty, I think that's cool, but it's also, I think like kind of in, it's something completely different than what the next level requires. The next level. What do you mean? The next level being a, a, a band that makes hits. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like, there's nothing saying you can't be like a community band from a scene that becomes a band that makes hits, but it's a different experience altogether. It's a different set of skills, and so I do think that there is a challenge making that leap, but just because it's such a different thing. Yeah, I'm. I'm like, I think it's really nice when people are like, "Why didn't they get bigger?" But like, I think it's pretty obvious because we didn't make hits. Like, we did. <laughs> we made. I think like sometimes people confuse songs that have catchy parts or memorable things as like being hits, but we didn't, we, we didn't make like songs that could have been on an album by the cars or something. You know what I mean? Like we we didn't do that. We could, could our songs have been on the radio on bigger radio? Like, sure. They could have played it like 
maybe five or 10 or a hundred times, but like you wouldn't go to Walmart and still hear our songs. Now we just didn't make those songs. We just didn't, we didn't do it. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think we tried. I don't think that was our forte. You know, I, I will counter by saying you had a song that was on a coffee commercial. That's true. That's true. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and if that's what we're calling hits nowadays, I might as well make that McDonald's song. <laughs> I know. If you had just said yes, then the McDonald's song. I want to ask a little bit about your uh, life as a children's author and children artist, children's book artist. Immediately regretted like quoting Justin Sansusi shouting the shouting the F word on stage. I was like, oh, no. My fans, if my eight-year-old fans hear this, I'm yeah. Bummed. <laughs> so you, um, I mean, we discussed it already. You, you and Justin did the art for the band, so you've been doing art for a long time. Uh-huh. And so, at some point, you do art for uh, Dave Eggers. Yes. How does that connection happen? Um, yeah, so that was like 2017. I did this book called Her Right Foot. Um, it was, oh man, we got to go back way far for this. So my, my childhood friend, um, who, let's see, his name is Mac Barnett. He's the author of the latest book that I, um, that I have out called The First Cat in Space Ate Pizza. It's a graphic novel. Um, But uh, he he's a, he's an author. He's got like over fifty books out. New York Times bestsellers. Blah 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 blah. Um, he was he was my closest friend in high school, and in fact he, excuse me, he wrote the um, he wrote the bio. He wrote the locals before we were the matches. Our bio in our very first. Ooh, you you gave him his first gig. Yeah 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 exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah, he was just like always like my authorial um friend and uh i almost when the matches were on we went out on that first real big fish tour and mac wrote his first book that was like had some interest of publishers and he was about to be a published author making a picture book for kids um i was doing i was doing illustrations for that book um i had sketched out all the characters i'd done like the outline and we were submitting it and the publishers were like, oh, well, that's cute. But like, that's not how this works. Like <laughs> we we acquire your manuscript. You don't tell us who's illustrating your book. We tell you who's illustrating your book. <laughs> and so I was out of that job and like kind of bummed. But also like tour was just taking off. And I was like, oh, thank God, because I don't think I actually had enough time to meet deadlines on that. But <clears throat> subsequently, I did I did uh, a bunch of album art for bands on epitaph records and just like general tour mate bands i did a bunch of uh a bunch of art that got published in that way um and just kind of kept being that guy that did merch and tour posters and all of my friends bands uh records for the subsequent uh decade um and finally uh my friend mac he married an editor and she was the editor of this dave eggers book and they had an illustrator um, drop off the job and they needed somebody to like fill in in a pinch who could do multimedia, uh, collage work. And I had done some of that for bands over the years. And she, uh, showed Dave my 
my art and I did some samples and got the gig. And at that time, all I was doing was a daily podcast um, that uh, I don't even know if you can find it anywhere anymore. Was it daily? Yeah, it was daily. Oh my God. <laughs> they were like, they were like 15, 20 minute episodes, but I would just like go like show up every day and start writing. Something. I mean, that's just, I'm just illustrating how little I had going on. I was, I was, we, uh, me and my wife had moved out to Joshua tree. Um, we had stopped, we were living in an Airstream trailer full time for two years. And then we like found this ramshackle house that was like falling into the disappearing into the ground. Um, and all the walls were falling down and there were no floors in it. So we bought it with all of our money that we had left. Um, so we, uh, for like, <laughs> for like, uh, two years I was out there just podcasting daily and like trying to fix up this house. And that was all that I had going on. I was just Googling how to fix a house. I don't actually know what I'm doing, um, but we fixed it and we sold it. Now you're rich. I'm so rich. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So do you, you just do art for kids books or do you actually write them too? Now I write them too. Uh, sometimes I just illustrate and sometimes I write and illustrate when I have a good idea that's worth illustrating of my own. Yeah. Now I'm curious when writing for kids. Yeah. What, what is your thought process in terms of, you know, writing something that they'll enjoy that's relatable, but also not being talking down to them. You know, how, how do you, how do you, what's the mind frame you get into one could argue that I've always just written for kids. <laughs> 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 you know, they got a little younger uh, here with the picture book audience. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just I just kind of uh, I make something that uh, I make something for that, that I'm interested in. And uh, sometimes that that idea seems to have an like an all ages sort of overlap, you know it's pretty clear when there is not going to be an overlap. Um, and then I turn it into something else, but, uh, yeah, once in a while there's like a, Oh, I think that could be a picture book. I wrote this, I wrote this book called, have you ever seen a flower? And I actually, when I started writing it, I thought I was writing a song. Um, you know, they all show up on the page as poems, whether they're picture books or songs, they start out as poems, but like nobody likes poems uh you can't nobody will show up anywhere for a poem um but we all love to write them so uh, you know the trick there is figuring out uh how to how to repurpose a poem um in some exciting way like a book um full of pictures or a or a song on an album (laughs) so yeah your your options as a poet are to turn them into kids books or uh hip-hop songs yeah, or punk or ska or whatever you want to play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Man>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you you have you hung out with Dave Eggers in person? Does yeah. he like the matches? Um I I I I heard my editor told me that she played the matches for Dave. I think that the extent of our conversation was I was just really trying to like appear as like a very professional illustrator. This is my first picture book and he's like a you know, a best-selling author and I just I didn't want to be like, "Hey, have you heard my band?" So like he was like, "I heard you guys you play in a band and you 
can sell out the Fillmore sometimes. And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I really like deflected it and downplayed so that it seemed like most of what I was doing was art. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. But I mean, uh, more importantly, did you ask him if he likes ska? Yeah, that's the really (laughs) important one we need to know. Yeah, I, I I looked through uh some of the CDs in his like he had a CD holder in his car. Yeah, let's hear what he listens to. And we were yeah, we were writing together um uh what was in there? There was a Decemberists album in there. Yeah, that, that that checks out. Uh-huh. There's Decemberists. There was a I think that I remember there being a there was a, a modest mouse in there. You know, yeah, okay. it's kinda of, I think he's got that like went away to college for four years kind of. Taste. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dave Eggers yeah. listens to very Dave Eggers music. <laughs> is what you're saying. Yeah. But you know, like he's an interesting dude. If you brought him, I, I would love if you, if we brought him to a ska show, I think he would. He has absolutely have to have been at a ska show before in his life. There's no way he hasn't. I don't know. I don't know. What percentage of people do you think have been to a ska show? 100%. <laughs> If we're talking about people, yeah, people, people our age and younger, people our age and younger, hundred percent, a hundred percent of people our age and younger have been. Yes, like, I'm just going to go with hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably probably more like ninety eight percent. Cool. All right. <laughs> so, Sean, your most recent book that you wrote and illustrated, uh, not not the, uh, uh-huh. but yeah. The uh, what's the flower one called again? Oh, have you ever seen a flower? Have you ever seen a flower? You want a Caldecott, an honor, a Caldecott honor, the silver medal, not the gold one, but yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a yeah, it's a big deal. Still, come on, don't downplay it. <laughs> All right, that's amazing. <laughs> Thank you, man. Thank you. Congratulations. I mean, how many times as like a kid did you like look at like a kid's book and like? run your fingers over one of those like weird stamps like badges on the cover You're like that's cool now you got one yeah man i'm going to washington dc at the end of the month to go get the like in-person medal wow so like the not the one that's stamped on every book but the like one with that i can bite and it and it won't break Ooh. yeah are you gonna take a picture of yourself biting it yeah i'll do that okay cool Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes, extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the In Defense of Ska Discord. In Defense of Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week so you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. 
And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.